Hey, good morning, everyone, and welcome to EuroNurse. We meet every Saturday at 9 a.m. <coughs> Central Time. And if you're joining us on Zoom, I mean, on YouTube, great. Be sure to hit that like button and that subscribe button. If this is your first time joining us, be sure to check out our website at euronurse.com where you can learn more about us and, and how you can become part of the program. It's also the best place to go to see all of our past episodes. We've got them all available on demand, all 29 episodes. This is our 30th episode today. Woohoo! So it's really been a, a great journey, a great ride. I'd like to thank a new sponsor that's joining us as uh, sponsoring the program, and that's the uh, Poesis Medical Company. Um, they were our speakers last week with the Duet Catheter. It was really interesting. And if you're interested in sponsoring the show, because that's, of course, how we are able to afford to keep this going, hit that sponsor info button on the website and find out more about how you can become a sponsor. Again, as, as usual, if you're joining us on the live audience and you want to ask a question, just use that Q&A button. Hit that. Go ahead. Ask any questions you have. We'll take some general questions. We got a great group of panelists here that'll be more than glad to answer any general questions. And then we're going to get into our program this week. We have Dr. Berger joining us. Uh, he's going to be talking about testosterone therapy. This was one of the subjects that we had a lot of demand for from the audience who asked has the ability on the surveys to say what they want us to talk about. So we're looking forward to that. And at this point, I think I would like to go ahead and bring our great group of panelists on for an introduction here. So for those of you that may be new to the program, my name is Vic Sinise. I'm the producer and host of the show. I've had 30 some years of urology experience, and this is my way of paying it back to everyone. And uh, Aaron, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to everyone? Hi, Aaron Berger. I'm uh, had the pleasure of working with Vic for many years in our practice in Chicago. I'm the chief medical officer at Associated Urological Specialists in the southwest suburbs of Chicago, and uh, happy to be with you and talk a little bit about uh, testosterone therapy. Great, Andrea. Good morning. My name's Andrea Strong. I'm a urology nurse practitioner in Wisconsin. I've been working in urology in some form since 2010. I've worked inpatient, outpatient, telephone triage procedures, everything in between. I'm certified as a urology um, nurse, and I'm excited to be here with you all this morning. Always great to have you. And Lori. Good morning, everyone. My name is Lori Atkinson. I've been in urology for 24 years now. Um, I am a certified urology registered nurse and currently working at Delmore in Geneva, and we just opened an office at Central DuPage Hospital in um, Winfield. Great. And last but not least, John, go ahead and introduce, introduce yourself. I'm a private practice urologist in Gilbert, Arizona, who wants to pay it forward by sharing my experience in the business of medicine to benefit my colleagues. I have a strong interest in coding, billing, compliance, efficient practice management, marketing, social media, and online reputation management. I am actually streaming this, Vic, to the Thriving Urology Practice Facebook group, where over 2,100 U.S.-based urology practice personnel join to collaborate so we can lift all ships. Hey, it's great to always have more promotion. Um, it's John's been really good at helping to promote the program, and we've got some a lot of growth in the program. So our next thing, I don't see any questions coming in here. Well, let, let me just double check. Yeah, nothing coming in on the Q&A. 
So we're going to go into our favorite stories. Um, I didn't have a long chance to talk to anybody about a favorite story if they have one. But if you don't, that's great. If you do, that's great, too. Um, I have a favorite story, though, I'm going to kick off with. And that's Euro Nurse. So it's a, a crazy idea that I came up with. And the group in Chicago Metro helped to form this and make it happen. Um, but I have to tell you that it's been amazing at how well it's grown and how fast it's grown. So one of the things that I look at is uh, Google search. So Google search actually this week sent me an award for the most searches that my programs received. So that was kind of a neat thing to get. Um, also, I was on, it gets broadcast on YouTube live at the same time, and it has the video on demand through YouTube. And we are now getting over a hundred views for each new episode as it airs every week. So that was kind of a, an amazing statistic. Our subscriber base grows every week. We're up to 70 subscribers as, as of the last time I looked. So I'd like to thank everybody that comes to the show live and those of you that are coming to the show and watching it on demand because we're, of course, going and covering the entire United States. We have viewers from all over the, the, the country and, uh, and one coming from Sydney, Australia. So we are international at this point. Um, and I just want to say thanks. That was my favorite story for this week. Anybody else have a favorite story? I'll be glad to turn it over. I have a story that happened this week. I was it's hoping always... Lori, that you'd have one. <laughs> Yours are the best. I, I have one every week and it's not even old. It's always new. So we had a patient that came in for a vasectomy. Um, he did well. After the vasectomy, he chose not to have the MA in the room while he dressed. All of a sudden, I'm getting called. Lori, we need you here. He is on the floor, like on the floor, in half in the bathroom, half in the procedure room. Like we don't know what happened. Um, it ended up being that he was he obviously got the tunnel vision and everything. But the problem is, is that we never we didn't witness it. So we don't know whether he hit his head. We don't know whether he, you know, got hurt. Luckily, we're in the hospital at Del Norte. So we, we, I did suggest going to the ER because we did not know what happened to him. And so he went to the ER. We brought him down to the ER. He was alert and oriented and his blood pressure was okay and everything. But he's like, my, my head does hurt a little bit. And I'm like, all right, yeah, we need to bring you. So we brought him and he's fine, but <laughs> the learning from that is just make sure you're in the room with patients, especially after procedures, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, that's a good point because uh, uh, I get involved in prostate biopsies and it's it's always the the burly truck driver guy who's, yeah, I'm fine, no problem, who sits up and goes, whoa. <laughs> so always keep an eye on him for a while just to be sure. All righty. Anybody else with a favorite story? It's either those, it's either those guys are the guys that have tattoos everywhere, and then they go crazy when you give them a little novocaine. Is it? It's always that. It's funny, you know the the guy who comes in and says, "I'm scared. I'm I'm really worried. I think I'm going to pass out." They never pass out. Well, you Watch know this guy that that decided he didn't want the MA in the room. Now he's got four girls around him, and he's in his underwear. So. <laughs> Oh, Lori, that reminded me um, of a story that happened once. So I was um, doing some training in my um, uh, nurse practitioner residency, and I was in the room with the urologist. Uh, he was performing a, an exam on a male patient. 
And the guy, a young guy, he's just standing there. And all of a sudden he tilts his head and rests it sort of against my shoulder because I was standing right there. He actually just passed out and then kind of rested his shoulder on me. So, yep, it does happen. Yep. Well, that's great. So well, the classic signs, stories, the classic right? signs of passing out, <laughs> the sweating, the, you know, they start going like this. They start getting fidgety. Those are the classic signs that they're going to pass out. I'll add one more sign that, that I've learned. I have to go to the bathroom. When somebody suddenly urgently wants to go to the bathroom, I go, no, absolutely not. Now you're going Trendelenburg till I'm sure you're, you know, and then of course the color changes and everything else, but that bathroom one, that's a sure sign. Well, having done thousands and thousands of vasectomies, uh, did about 2,200 vasectomies in the last uh, two years, before I started using laughing gas or nitrous oxide, I had a few patients who would vasovagal, who would pass out. And one of the, another one of those signs was, boy, I'm feeling really, really thirsty. But uh, since using laughing gas, I can count on maybe one finger, the number of patients who try to pass out, uh, it, it works really, really well. Yeah, I, I love the anti-anxiety effect of the nitrous. It really, I agree, it, it's made a big difference. All right, well, now we're going to go switch over to our full show, and I'm going to ask Aaron to switch to the uh, screen share. And while you're doing that, I'm going to go ahead and announce all the wonderful attendees that I see up on the screen. Somebody's actually calling in by phone. That's interesting. Uh, but I see April and oops, I can't see the screen anymore. So I'll quit announcing names and I'm going to go turn it over to Dr. Berger. Sorry, Vic. I didn't mean to uh, lose, oh, your lose your screen okay. share there. <laughs> all right. So uh, welcome, everyone. Thanks for the invitation, uh, Vic. Um, so we're going to go through a little overview of diagnosis and treatment of testosterone deficiency. Again, I'm Aaron Berger. I'm from uh, southwest suburbs of Chicago, formerly while well, still working with Vic, although Vic's doing more of his uh, his uh, influencer presence these days online versus uh, working in the office. But uh, he uh, taught me taught me many things when I was very green 15 years ago. So, um, uh, so well, we'll get right into it. So uh, certainly, any questions, use the Q and A, and we can uh, we have plenty of time for some questions at the end. So. Okay, so what is the definition of testosterone deficiency? And this is this is kind of a rundown or summary of the guidelines from the American Urologic Association. They're a bit dated from 2018, but I don't think there's been a tremendous amount that's changed in the world of testosterone uh, in the last few years. Um, so typically this is defined as two morning testosterone and or free testosterone levels that are below normal. And the traditional cutoff for low total testosterone is less than 300. Uh, but some labs do have different reference uh, ranges uh, and the testing should be done in the morning. So testosterone levels do decrease somewhat throughout the day. And this is a good excuse for insurance companies to deny uh, coverage. So if you have a testosterone that's done after 12 p.m., they'll say, oh, it was done in the afternoon. It doesn't count and you have to redo it. So I'm sure uh, if Dr. Lin is a expert on coding. He knows all these all these tricks the insurance does to try to uh, avoid uh, payment. And some of the reference ranges 
uh, for different labs, they just use different cutoffs as far as, you know, standard deviations from the mean. So really that's less than 300 range for your total testosterone is really what we should be looking for. Um, and if the patient is symptomatic. So you see a patient, someone's checked their testosterone, it's a little below normal and they have no symptoms, they don't really need any evaluation or treatment. Uh, so it really requires symptoms and the lab levels to be low. So causes, so you can have just age-related uh, testicular failure or testicular decline. Uh, other common causes can be uh, chronic pain medication, narcotic use, uh, can depress testosterone production. Uh, patients have had prior chemotherapy, if they're on chronic steroids for uh, other medical issues, uh, if there's any history of pituitary dysfunction uh, and a history of HIV or AIDS, but certainly with all the medications available for that. We don't see uh, too many cases of this anymore with uh, full-blown HIV uh, symptoms, but uh, just to keep in the back of your mind, but these are some of the common uh, potential causes of low testosterone. So initial laboratory testing beside just the testosterone uh, and or free testosterone. So LH, so LH or luteinizing hormone is the uh, hormone that basically stimulates the testicles to make testosterone. So uh, certainly this is something that uh, you uh, may want to check as well to really figure out uh, what the cause of their low testosterone is. So if they have low LH and low testosterone, this is considered hypogonadotropic or central hypogonadism, where they're just not getting enough production of LH uh, from the pituitary. Uh, if there's high LH and low T levels, this is more of a primary uh, testicular issue. Uh, now, as far as the actual cause, you know, some, some, uh, some insurance companies, if you're trying to get patients on therapy, will require that they have a diagnosis of hypogonadotropic hypogonadism, and you really have to check the LH uh, uh, levels. Uh, and oftentimes this goes, you know, with FSH kind of comes together, LH, FSH, sometimes prolactin levels as well. Uh, it's kind of a panel we often uh, will run for infertility, but uh, the, the key thing here is the LH. Um, but, you know, it really depends on the, on the provider and the, and the insurance, if you really need the LH, because ultimately the treatment is going to be uh, similar. Uh, prolactin levels, you can check uh, if the testosterone is normal, I mean, if the testosterone is low and you have a low to low normal uh, LH, just to make sure there's not a uh, potential uh, pituitary issue. Uh, estradiol levels, if patients have a low uh, T level and gynecomastia uh, as, a, as a main complaint. Uh, baseline CBC to check the hemoglobin and hematocrit levels so you can compare to the levels once they're on treatment, and we'll discuss uh, why this is important a little bit later. And certainly PSA levels should be checked uh, in men who are uh, above 40 or if they have uh, uh, risk of family history or other uh, high-risk factors for prostate cancer. So what are the, some, some of the symptoms of testosterone deficiency? There can be some cognitive symptoms. A lot of men uh, just uh, have some, some depression or lethargic. Uh, they can have some cognitive dysfunction, um, uh, concentration issues, uh, sorry for the typo there, uh, concentration memory issues, sometimes irritability or, or uh, uh, mood swings, uh, reduced motivation to really uh, uh, be real active and do a lot of stuff. Uh, certainly sexual uh, side effects is one of the main uh, reasons that patients will come into the office to, to be evaluated if they have reduced libido. Uh, they also can have some erectile dysfunction. The data is still a little, a little unclear if the, if the low testosterone is really affecting this at all. You know, it seems the, the main 
issue as far as erectile dysfunction with low testosterone is really just that reduced libido. Uh, as I tell patients, if their head's not in the game, uh, they're going to have uh, issues with their uh, sexual performance since uh, such a, a significant part of sexual function is uh, upstairs above the shoulders. So um, uh, that certainly can be an issue. As far as physical symptoms, uh, low energy, uh, fatigue, uh, decrease in uh, muscle mass and lean body mass, uh, weight gain, uh, loss of uh, body hair. You know, people uh, used to have a nice, full, lush beard. Uh, sometimes that uh, is, is not working anymore. Um, and then diminished uh, physical performance. You know, people say, I go to the gym, I work out every day, I'm just not seeing any results. Um, you know, all those things uh, can uh, be uh, symptoms of uh, testosterone uh, deficiency. So here's just a little graphical interpretation of this. So the low testosterone is, you know, mental fogginess, uh, fatigue, tiredness, uh, some depression, uh, some of that uh, uh, adipose fat deposits in the, in the midsection, uh, low sex drive, erectile dysfunction, uh, and also risk of osteoporosis. So with low testosterone, uh, you can uh, have an increased risk of uh, bone loss, you know, similar to men who are on therapy for prostate cancer with uh, medications to induce low testosterone. We always want to discuss bone health. So this can be a factor for men with low testosterone as well. Uh, so the optimal testosterone helps the bones, helps energy, can increase uh, muscle mass and, and lean body mass uh, and, uh, you know, clear thinking um, as far as their, their memory and concentration and, uh, and focus. So as far as counseling patients, so this is some of the highlights from the uh, AUA guidelines. So testosterone deficiency can increase the risk of cardiovascular disease. Uh, there is good data to support that. Uh, testosterone therapy may help improve libido, sexual function, lean body mass, and bone density. Uh, it is currently inconclusive, at least as of the guidelines from, like I said, 2018, uh, if testosterone therapy improves energy, cognitive function, or lipid profiles. So there is some, uh, you know, been some, some back and forth and controversies over the years about whether uh, testosterone is really uh, helpful for kind of metabolic syndrome as far as uh, lipids and sugar and all those uh, kind of metabolic factors, um, and as well as cardiac disease. You know, there was a time where they thought it really, really potentially worsened the risk for cardiac disease, but that data is really not, uh, that doesn't really support that conclusion. So they're basically saying here that it's inconclusive um, uh, to counsel patients, but certainly the most, you know, the majority of patients I see do, do feel better uh, on therapy and you do want to assess desire for future fertility. Uh, we talked about earlier the LH, LH and FSH pathway. Uh, so if you do give them exogenous testosterone, and we'll discuss the treatment options in a few minutes, uh, this basically will provide negative feedback and will actually decrease the FSH production as well, which will decrease their sperm count. So if patients are interested in having children in the future, that may affect uh, the choice of what therapy you're going to give them, uh, or they may just opt to not uh, go on any therapy uh, at all. Uh, there's no definitive evidence that testosterone therapy increases rates of thromboembolic events. There's no evidence that testosterone therapy will cause prostate cancer. This is kind of another, another urban myth that's on, uh, on, uh, online that people will say, it's like, oh, if I take this, I'm going to get prostate cancer. Uh, the way I typically explain it to patients is, is certainly testosterone is involved with prostate cancer. So if they have undiagnosed prostate cancer, certainly that can accelerate things. But as far as causing it in the first place, uh, there's really no evidence to support that. 
And again, as I mentioned on the last slide, there's no clear evidence at this time if testosterone therapy will actually affect the risk of cardiovascular events. But there's certainly no evidence that it, uh, that it, it you know, in general, uh, increases the risk. So uh, whether it decreases the risk, that's for future studies. Uh, a lot of people believe that, but uh, right now they're just saying no clear evidence one way or the other. So testosterone in the circulation. Uh, so there are several proteins uh, that testosterone can be bound to. So about half of the testosterone is bound to albumin. And this is a loose, uh, loose binding uh, with the testosterone. About 2% of the testosterone is free, just in the circulation, not bound to anything. 44% uh, is bound to something called sex hormone binding globulin. And this is a tight bound. So this is really not available uh, for the body to use. And then 4% is bound to something called corticotropin binding globulin. This is, a, again, a loose association. So there's something called bioavailable testosterone, uh, which is basically a combination of the free along with that bound to albumin and the corticotropin binding globulin, which are the loose associations. So this, the, the, the uh, amount that's bound to sex hormone binding globulin is not really available. So some patients just seem to have a higher amount of this uh, sex hormone binding globulin. So even if their total testosterone levels are normal, their free testosterone or the bioavailable testosterone may be low. So it's important uh, if you have a patient who is symptomatic, uh, they come in, they say, oh, I I'm, I'm have bad memory, I, you know, I have weight gain, I have no energy, I am decreased libido, all those classic symptoms, and their total testosterone looks okay, it's really important to check that uh, free and or bioavailable testosterone to see what they really have in the body that can be used. Um, as we discussed earlier, there's a wide range of variability in terms of reference ranges. You can send something to, you know, one lab and it'll be less than 300 is below normal. I know I have some labs here in Chicago that they'll go down as low as like 240 or 220 even for the total testosterone. And this is all just, you know, different definitions of normal. Uh, based on uh, the number of standard deviations from the mean as far as uh, what the lab is setting. Um, but, you know, if a patient is symptomatic and does have a low absolute level, the recommendation from the AUA is that you still should consider treatment. Now, is he, are you going to be able to get that treatment covered? You know, if they have a, a level that's quote unquote normal on whatever lab they're using, uh, that's a different story. But, um, you know, if they're less than 300 as an absolute number uh, and symptomatic, you still should consider treatment, at least according to the guidelines. So let's move into some treatment options. Uh, so one of the, the first uh, kind of treatments for at-home use was the testosterone gel. There were you know, several brand names when this was uh, available as a, a branded medication. There was you know, Androgel, uh, there's one called Axeron for a while that went under the armpits, almost like a deodorant. Um, there was Testim, which was the little tubes uh, for single use. So really now all of those are generic. Uh, so the most common is just the testosterone gel, which does come in you know, different strengths, it's typically 1% or 1.62%. Uh, we do have some patients who uh, get the pump, which is the most common. Uh, some insurances still use the single-use uh, daily tubes. So typically, this gets applied to the upper arm uh, shoulder area daily. I typically recommend, you know, having patients do this, you know, after they shower and are getting dressed, because uh, you don't want to get this wet for uh, at least two to three hours after uh, application. Um, there is the uh, risk of transference, so women and, and children really should not be, um, you know, coming in contact with testosterone gel. So for people who have uh, children or grandchildren who are on therapy, 
um, I mean, sorry, if the, the patients are on therapy and they have children or grandchildren, you know, coming by and they have you know, short sleeve shirts on and they, you know, the kids are jumping on them and playing with, with grandpa or dad, uh, you don't want to have the kids be in contact with the testosterone gel. So they got to be cautious of that. Uh, these are generic at this point, as I mentioned. So often this is the initial therapy that we can get insurance coverage for. Uh, there is a, uh, a percentage of patients, you know, roughly about 15, 20%, they just don't absorb this well. Um, and it's unclear exactly why this is. As I tell some patients, you know, they could take a bath in the stuff, it just doesn't work. Um, so some patients you do two pumps, three pumps, you know, whatever, it just, it, their, their levels just don't budge. So it's unclear exactly why that is, but for some people, it just doesn't work. Um, and then some patients, uh, they do get some skin irritation. Uh, it's not real common, but it certainly can happen. Everyone, uh, you know, some, there's people have sensitive skin. Uh, so that, that can happen as well. Uh, there is also a testosterone patch. I think that used to be called androderm, uh, but that's uh, generic as well now. So there's two milligram or four milligram patches. So you do one to two patches uh, nightly, lasts for 24 hours. Um, you know, so it's between two to six milligrams is the dose you want. So you would do, uh, you know, a combination of one, two and one, four or two, two is really depending on uh, dose titration. Uh, again, these, you know, can work pretty well, assuming patients can absorb testosterone through the skin. Uh, but again, some skin irritation uh, can occur. And this is more common uh, as far as skin issues with the patch than it is with the gel. Uh, clomiphene. So clomiphene is a you know, medication that's been around for a long time. It's a, you know, classically used for infertility for women to stimulate uh, ovulation. Uh, but since the pituitary pathways for men and women, as far as LH and FSH uh, uh, are similar, uh, it is also used to uh, help uh, promote uh, the production of more LH, which then stimulates the testicles uh, to produce testosterone. So basically clomiphene blocks the estrogen receptor at the pituitary and, and estrogen basically is acting as the off switch uh, in essence for uh, this hormonal pathway. So some testosterone does get converted to estrogen naturally. So when the pituitary sees estrogen, it basically will decrease the production of LH and FSH for men. So by blocking this with the clomiphene, it keeps the LH, uh, LH and FSH production going, which will then uh, subsequently go to the testicles and uh, increase testosterone production. So this can be taken either 25 milligrams daily uh, or 50 milligrams every other day, which is what I typically use. Um, and if, uh, you know, if patients do have an interest in future fertility, this is really the go-to medication in my opinion, because it does not suppress and in fact enhances their sperm production. So they may have, uh, you know, even better chances of uh, more children than they do without the medication. So it kind of has a double benefit if patients are having some some issues, you know, a lot of infertility patients, you know, when they're going through that, uh, uh, you know, stress of that whole process, uh, you know, sometimes the, the interest in sexual activity or the libido is decreased, and sometimes they do have a low testosterone or low, low normal testosterone. So this does have somewhat of a, a double benefit. Um, and it is, it is generic. So it is a relatively easy to get and get covered for patients. There's also two other oral medications, which are actually synthetic testosterone. So this is not, these are not stimulating, pretty much everything else we're talking about here is not stimulating natural production, but this is uh, stimulated, this is actual testosterone uh, therapy. So uh, Jatenzo has been out for a few years. It comes in three different uh, strengths, all nice, nice round numbers, uh, 158, 198, and 237. 
Um, so not sure exactly. It's, uh, I'm sure the, the studies just found those were the right doses, but uh, a little confusing there. But so you can always reference your pharmacy book. Uh, but the starting dose is typically 237 milligrams twice a day. And then once you get patients started on therapy, you can either go up or down uh, depending on how their, how their labs uh, work and how they are feeling. Another newer medication uh, came out a couple of years ago called Tlando. Uh, this comes in uh, 112.5 milligram pills. And again, starting dose here is 225 milligrams BID. So you're taking four pills a day. So it is a decent number of pills. Uh, both of these, in my experience, do work well. Um, but, you know, they do have some difficulty as far as insurance coverage. So, um, you know, especially because these are oral medications, these come out of patients' uh, pharmacy benefits, not really not as much as their medical benefits, uh, which, you know, is, is two very different things. So the, the cost of these sometimes can be uh, prohibitive uh, for some patients, but if they are able to get them, uh, they do uh, seem to work pretty well. Uh, Testapel. So Testapel has been around for, gosh, it's uh, probably 15, 16, 17 years at this point. Uh, so basically, this is uh, small pellets that are about 75 milligrams each. These are implanted subcutaneously every three months, uh, typically in the, in the buttock is the typical place um, that these are placed. So the starting dose is typically six pellets, but then you can titrate up if uh, levels are not therapeutic and or if their symptoms are not improved. So basically uh, the patients come in, you make a, you prep a little area in the kind of the upper outer quadrant of their buttock, you make a small stab incision, and then there's a, a needle and a, you know, a little trocar needle that goes in. You slide that in and then you remove the, the inner part, the stylet uh, that has the sharp point on it. And then it's basically a hollow, a hollow introducer that you slide the, slide the pellets in it. It's kind of like loading a shotgun. Uh, you kind of slide the pellets in like you, uh, and then you uh, use the little pusher device to, to push them in. And if you're using uh, more than six, then you can either uh, do uh, two rows. So kind of in a, in a V pattern. So I, I typically will, uh, you know, kind of do like one go in this direction, one go in that direction or some variation. And there's also a technique where you can stack them. Uh, so you kind of do three deep or six, you know, six deeper, and then a few more uh, closer to the surface. Um, and then basically you just do a little steri strip and a little tegaderm and that's it. And they do that every three months. I mean, the whole procedure takes a minute or two and patients tolerate this pretty well. Um, and it is kind of out of sight, out of mind. You know, we put them in and they're good for three months and uh, they don't really have to think about it. And there's no risk of transference since there's no way anyone can, you know, touch under the skin in their buttocks. Uh, so that's not gonna, not gonna be a concern. Uh, another option uh, is something called Avid. So Avid is a uh, depot uh, or long-lasting intramuscular injection. Uh, it only comes in one dose um, and it's done intramuscularly in the office and patients uh, need to be watched in the office for 30 minutes. So when they did the clinical trials, there were uh, the, the emulsion liquid that this is in, you know, has some fatty droplets. So there were a couple patients that had some uh, shortness of breath and they found they had these small uh, basically like little fat embolism uh, emboli that can that can go to the lung. Uh, you know, no one died from this. This isn't like a pulmonary embolism where people drop dead. Um, they just had a little shortness of breath and they, they were fine. Um, but based on those couple situations, uh, the FDA does have a warning that you basically have to observe these patients and document you observe them and that they had no respiratory issues for about 30 minutes. 
uh, after the injection. So these days, you know, when everyone's got their phone, they can sit there and watch Netflix or whatever. It's not that big a deal or watch uh, past episodes of Euronurse would be even better. Um, then, you know, they have something to do. So it's really not that big a deal. Most people don't really have a problem with this. Um, the schedule with Avid is you do an initial injection. The second injection is about four weeks later. And then subsequent injections are every 10 weeks. And the recommendation from the company that makes this is that you don't check their repeat labs until after that third injection. That's really, there's kind of a ramp up period to kind of get the levels to steady state. Uh, so if you check their testosterone after the first or even the second injection, you may not see uh, that they're having uh, the full effect. So you also want to counsel patients not to be discouraged that they don't feel uh, you know, fully improved until after that third injection. And then there's this uh, generic uh, IM injections, which you know you can, people can get you know through specialty pharmacies, compounding pharmacies, or a lot of even uh, just uh, local uh, drugstores, Walgreens, CVS, whatever will carry uh, testosterone uh, siphonate, which is uh, the most common uh, form used. So this is uh, something a lot of times patients will just be instructed to do at home. They can inject themselves in the in the buttock and the thigh and uh, the hip. Um, and this is typically done either 50 to 100 milligrams, either sub Q or IM weekly, or some patients that you know don't want to do the injections as often uh, do 100 to 200 milligrams uh, every other week. Uh, it's relatively inexpensive as it is uh, generic, um, but since you're doing these frequent injections, the testosterone levels do tend to kind of yo-yo a little bit, or you know if you track their testosterone, it does have a little bit of a sawtooth uh, kind of appearance sometimes where they'll kind of go up and they're good for several days and then it kind of starts coming down especially if they're doing it every two weeks um, but it is a, it is a relatively inexpensive option it's you know pretty readily available and a lot of patients you know do fine with this um, and again there's no concern for transference because it is going either under the skin or in the muscle uh, along the same lines is another uh, medication uh, called Zyosted. So Zyosted is a weekly auto-injector. So I liken it to an EpiPen that people use for allergies. Um, so basically it uh, comes in 50, 75, or 100 milligram uh, dosages, or that should say 50 milligrams, not 50 grams. That would be a little much. Um, uh, patient never really sees the needle. So patients who you know just can't do an injection themselves because they have a needle, needle phobia, I'm sure there's a better name for needle phobia than needle phobia, but uh, that's you know, a lot of patients just don't uh, like needles or can't inject themselves or don't have anyone at home that can inject for them. So the nice thing with this is they never really see the needle. So they basically take the little cap uh, off the device. They squeeze a little little area of belly fat, hold it against the skin and basically press the button. And after about uh, 10 seconds, they hear a click and it's there and that's done. So it's a subcutaneous uh, weekly. Um, again, this is a very good option uh, if you can get uh, insurance to cover it. But, you know, a lot of guys really like this that I, in my experience. But again, it does, uh, you know, take a little more work as far as getting uh, coverage. So those are the main options. I think I, I neglected to mention there's another, there's a nasal gel uh, called, I think that's still around, called Natesto. I don't know. Uh, I haven't heard a lot about that recently. It was a, a nasal gel testosterone that gets absorbed through the nares. Um, um, but uh, I've not seen that one uh, recently. So, uh, but it's another, another option again, that is, uh, for patients who fail, uh, topical gel, it doesn't go through the skin. Uh, so as far as follow-up on treatment, so once patients start on treatment, you should repeat their labs after about eight to 12 weeks, uh, of starting therapy. 
And that doesn't always mean eight to 12 weeks from when you see them and give them the prescriptions. Because a lot of these products, as I mentioned, you know, insurance does put a lot of restrictions on testosterone, especially brand name testosterone products. So sometimes it can take a few weeks to even get the medication um, as far as prior authorizations and getting it from the pharmacy and all that kind of stuff. So uh, you really should do eight to 12 weeks after they've started treatment, not just from their visit. So sometimes it's good to let uh, have the patients let you know when they're actually starting. Uh, and I typically will do a total testosterone uh, and a free testosterone because, as I mentioned, sometimes the, the testosterone can be bound to other proteins. So you want to make sure that the, the free or bioavailable is actually improved. Uh, you also want to check their CBC. Uh, you want to check a PSA. And then if they are stable on treatment, they're happy with their their, their uh, treatment, they feel better, they are having a better sexual function, better cognitive function, uh, better uh, physical uh, uh, improvements, uh, then typically repeat the labs every six to 12 months. And the recommendation from the AUA is that if their levels improve, but there's no symptomatic improvement within three to six months, you really should discuss uh, discontinuation. So, you know, if they, if they're, if they, if their levels look great, they have normal testosterone, normal bioavailable or free testosterone, they don't feel any better then you know, why are we doing this? Um, and you really should discuss potentially stopping the treatment and then having them look for other causes, whether it's uh, more of a mental health issue or, you know, being screened for other, uh, other issues, you know, thyroid function, things of that nature. Um, cause if they're not better, then there's really no point in you know, just treating lab values. You gotta, you know, make sure the patients are symptomatically improved as that was part of the definition that they do have symptoms. So if the symptoms are not better, then it may not be best uh, in their best interest to keep doing the medication. So one of the potential side effects that needs to be discussed is something called polycythemia, also called erythrocytosis. Uh, and this can occur with testosterone replacement therapy. Uh, you need to check their CBC on a regular basis. Uh, so if the hematocrit or hemoglobin, uh, mainly the hematocrits, what I, I worry about is too high, which uh, you know typically they would define in most labs as above you know, 54% uh, most labs that can cause some hyperviscosity of the blood where the blood is actually getting kind of too thick and that can lead to headaches, uh, fatigue, blurred vision and paresthesias uh, in some cases. So if you have patients that really are happy on their therapy, they feel much better, their you know, sexual functions better, their mental functions better, you know, they're happy about their life overall and they don't wanna stop the medication just because their hematocrit's too high, uh, you can have them see uh, a hematologist and a lot of times I work with several hematologists and they just get them set up to do routine phlebotomy. Well, they'll go in and they'll just, you know, we're basically, you know, remove some blood and uh, that will reduce their hematocrit levels uh, to a more appropriate level. And, uh, you know, it, it does sound a little, uh, a little crazy sometimes that people go in and, and get uh, bled basically like a vampire, you know, uh, on a regular basis. But if they feel better with the therapy, um, this is a good option if they do have that side effect of polycythemia or erythrocytosis. So some uh, patients, especially if they are obese and have more fat cells, uh, can develop elevated el levels of estradiol or female hormones when on therapy. And this sometimes can uh, blunt the effectiveness of the testosterone. Uh, I guess one of my stories I could share, Vic, is I had a patient who is on therapy, his testosterone uh, was, was doing really good. He was up like six, 700. Uh, you know, felt better, sexual function was better, but he told me he was watching some like Hallmark Hall of Fame movies with his wife and he was in tears, which he said he never, never happened to him before. So I said, let's check your estradiol levels. And he was, you know, up like 60 or 70 on his estradiol, which certainly is a uh, uh, higher than it should be for men. So, um, 
you know, so fat cells do have an enzyme that converts uh, testosterone to estrogen. Uh, so not that this can't happen with, uh, you know, men who are pretty fit or, or thin, but if they do have a bit of a, uh, a belly uh, and with some extra fat cells, they definitely have a higher risk of this conversion. So there is a medication called anastrozole or Arimidex is the brand name. This is one milligram weekly that basically inhibits the aromatase enzyme. Uh, so it will decrease the production of estradiol. So their testosterone stays more as uh, testosterone. So with that, I think that's all I have for slides. So happy to uh, take some questions. So I'll stop sharing here and let you take over here, Vic. And if anyone has so, any sounds questions. Sounds good. All right. Hey, that was great. Really uh, comprehensive. You covered most everything. So I'm sure there's a few questions out there. Uh, again, audience, go ahead and put those in on the Q&A. Um, I had a couple of questions. Have you heard anything about the use of all this plastics? You know, everybody's drinking their water out of a plastic bottle. And there's some claims that the estrogens are leaching out of the plastic and increasing some of this you know, estrogens in our male population decreasing their testosterone. Any thoughts uh, on that? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I mean that, I guess, you know, the studies and data, you know, are, are there's a lot of stuff about, I mean, the, not only that, but just, you know, the effect of all these microplastics or nanoplastics and for a lot of health issues. So that that's certainly one of them. I mean, I don't know if there's anything specifically we can do to, to test that or, you know, or find out if that's really the cause, but either way at this point, uh, yeah, exactly. There, what is that? Your, your plastic free, uh, yeah, EPA metal. Free. I, I use all metal cups now. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of environment, environmental factors and and things we're all exposing ourselves to just in daily life that can lead to some hormonal imbalances. You know, not just for men, but for women and anybody else. But uh, um, you know, as far as as far as you know, treatment and evaluation goes, you know, regardless of cause, the the you know those will be similar, and we'll tell everyone to start getting reusable reusable metal cups. There you go. It's the answer. I got to invest in Yeti stock. There you go. Uh, Paula Wagner said, or asked this question. I follow the endocrine guidelines. They are comprehensive. Do you do replacement after treatment of prostate cancer? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I, sorry, I, did, I didn't discuss that. So basically um, that also was one of the guidelines. I uh, neglected to put that in as a bullet point, but yeah, there really is, there's no um, contraindication to doing testosterone therapy if patients have been treated for prostate cancer and they basically appear to have been cured. So if patients have had uh, prostatectomy and their PSA is undetectable, they've had radiation therapy or other therapies and their PSA is low and stable, um, there's really no reason you cannot give them testosterone therapy. I liken it to how I explain that to patients is if they had a twin uh, you know, who had the exact same prostate cancer treatment and the same PSA, and one of them had a normal testosterone and one of them didn't, um, you're basically doing, you're basically making them equal uh, with their testosterone. So um, again, there's really no evidence that, that this is causing uh, uh, prostate cancer or prostate cancer recurrence. Um, certainly if patients have, you know, more advanced prostate cancer um, or, you know, appears they're having a biochemical recurrence after prostate cancer treatment, or obviously anyone who's on um, you know, because I do have some patients who are on, you know, luprolide or other medications for advanced prostate cancer, metastatic prostate cancer, and they go on the internet and they come in with, you know, stuff. Oh, can I take, you know, can I take this medication or that medication? I'm like, well, you could, but that's exactly opposite of what we're trying to do to treat your cancer. So, um, 
you know, unfortunately for that patient population, you know, the low T and the symptoms that go with it is kind of just a, a necessary evil to keep their cancer under control. Um, but, um, you know, I, I don't have any problem giving patients, um, you know, certainly after surgery, if their PSA goes undetectable, I, I go pretty quickly with that. Uh, for patients who get radiation, you know, if they, if they, sometimes it takes, you know, up to a year for their, their PSA to kind of bottom out. So I am a little bit more cautious there just to make sure they keep uh, getting down to a, a good nadir before we start testosterone. But in general, you know, the testosterone is not thought to, you know, increase uh, recurrence risk. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I had heard uh, somebody also speaking on testosterone a while back that made the analogy that when we treat prostate cancer, we don't make everybody, you know, hypogonadic. So it makes sense that if you've got, you know, a lot of patients out there have prostate cancer and normal testosterone levels. So all you're trying to do is normalize somebody. Yep. That makes sense. Um, so, hey, anybody from our panelists that have a question, feel free to throw that in there. Paula did make a, Paula Wagner did bring a point up that their blood bank will not take patients with elevated hematocrit or polycythemia for donations. And I think the therapeutic phlebotomy doesn't utilize that blood. I think it's just wasted if I remember. Yeah, I think right. it just gets disposed of, yeah. So that is. I was just going to actually mention, um, because you mentioned sending patients to hematologists and we, you know, back in the day it was life source, but now I think it's vitalin. We would just send them for monthly blood dumps what we call them blood dumps. Yeah. And that, that's what, you know, that often happens. I just, I know I like to always get an, uh, an ex, someone more expert than me, you know, that's a blood, blood specialist, you know, to see, but if you don't have it, you know, that option where, you know, where your practices are easy access to someone, certainly just having them go to, you know, to do that uh, at a place, you know, like, uh, like that would be fine. But um, I like to, you know, at least get an opinion of a blood expert before we just to make sure there's no other underlying cause or anything else going on. We need to be worried about. Thank you very much for this presentation. I thought it was excellent, very informative. I just wanted to point out to our attendees that this would be a great presentation to study up on if you're interested in getting certified. Yeah, good point. And I'm trying to see if I can get Kathy Marchese to talk, who was a past president of our certifying board, to explain a little bit more about what's involved in certification. Um, I do have a couple questions coming in here. Shalipa, Denak sorry, but mispronouncing this, Denakar. We have a few Asian patients who are shy or fearful regarding the use of testosterone. These patients are symptomatic weight gain, have low testosterone levels. What is the best way to educate and convince them regarding testosterone use? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, and just in general, I think this is probably an underdiagnosed um, uh you know, problems. So, you know, even if I'm seeing patients for other issues, whether it's urinary issues or whatever, and part of a new consultation, I always ask about their, their sexual function, their sexual performance, their desire, all that kind of uh, energy levels, things of that nature. Because I think a lot of men are hesitant, not just uh, any specific population, but uh, a lot of men are just hesitant to discuss these things. Um, or they just say, hey, it's just part of, you know, getting older, but you know, it doesn't have to be uh, necessarily, we do have options, as we just discussed. Uh, I mean, I think as, as far as specific, uh, specific uh, patient populations, you know, certainly there can be some cultural, you know, stigmas or things of that nature for using any kind of supplementation for uh, whether it's, you know, mental health or sexual performance or any of those things. But I think, you know, just explaining the potential benefits, 
you know, especially if they're gaining weight, if they're, um, you know, if their lipid profiles are off, again, the data right now is not conclusive enough to state in the guidelines that this helps all those situations. But, you know, certainly intuitively, if you have, that does it, there we go. Um, yeah. um, yeah, I mean, you know, lean body mass, you know, less, less, uh, less adipose, all that stuff. I think that certainly has a lot of other benefits, but if Dr. Lin has some, something, he has a, some thoughts, so please. Oh, I was going to, hopefully this is not interfering with the audio. I was, I was going to mention when a patient brings, well, first of all, when a patient has a litany of complaints, I try to address one at a time instead of treating multiple things at the same time. And I, I don't know about you, Aaron, but sometimes addressing the lower urinary tract symptoms improves a man's erectile function. I don't know why, but it seems to, to do that for some of my patients. In addition, when a guy comes in complaining of fatigue and things like that to typical hypogonadal complaints, I don't jump straight into testosterone replacement therapy. I start talking to, to him about sleep hygiene, about alcohol use, about his sleep patterns. Also try to think about uh, obesity. Do they have sleep apnea? And, and try to address those things first before I put the patient on this potentially lifelong therapy because I've seen plenty of men as you have who comes in with hypo just atrophic testes and now they're because of chronic testosterone use and now they're dependent on it lifelong so before I start a patient on testosterone replacement therapy I always tell them this is something that could happen and also infertility a lot of people don't realize if you are just on testosterone infertility can result yeah, I think yeah, they'll do some great points. Some some, 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 some good, good points, points there. there. Um, um, and a question for, 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 oh, oh, still, for some reason, whenever John, whenever your mic's live, it seems to give us a feedback. Um, Aaron, I had a question for you. Uh, so out of, I mean, there's so many choices and it's kind of like with everything in medicine nowadays, it's hard to, you know, tell a patient what your recommendation is when there's so many choices to give them like all those choices. Do you have like your own favorite, what's your first line of therapy, what you would, you know, then progress to? Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, we typically would start with the topical products. Um, you know, I do offer patients injections, but I think, you know, uh, you know, a lot of patients are, are somewhat fearful of needles as I am. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, you know, I think that's especially doing it themselves at home sometimes is a, is a little more challenging than just doing some, you know, rubbing some gel on. And as far as, you know, insurance coverage, uh, you know, that is the, the, the one product that we can typically get covered reasonably easily. You know, if we, if we document their symptoms, we document at least two morning testosterone levels that are below normal, you know, at least a week apart, um, that we can normally get covered, you know, relatively uh, inexpensively for patients. Um, and a lot of patients do just fine with the gel I and mean, there's nothing wrong with it. It works well. I mean, uh, we used it for a long time, but there certainly are those that whether it's a risk of transference or, you know, a lot of times, you know, men in general just don't remember to do stuff on a regular basis or don't like doing stuff on a regular basis and just forget. Um, or it's just, you know, they just don't want to deal with it. Then, you know, certainly the, the, the depot products are, um, uh, really nice. I mean, I personally, I, I like the Zyostead option a lot. It's just, again, difficult to get, uh, covered. Um, you know, and then the, for those patients that just want to be kind of out of sight, out of mind, you know, the, uh, 
the the pellets are great. It is a little bit of a procedure, you know. So people who've been, you know, doing that for a long time, when they come in, they you know they do have all these tiny little you know scars on their backside. It kind of looks like a like a checkerboard at some point, um, but uh, it does work very well, um, you know. And the long acting injection is something that we've you know kind of been doing a little bit more of lately, um, just because it, it's we've had some better luck getting that covered uh, from insurance just because, you know, the injectables typically are not going through their, their part D insurance or, you know, their, their medical benefits, or I mean, their uh, pharmacy benefits. So for cost wise, you know, that either the pellets or the injectable has been a little bit easier, you know, and I'm sure Dr. Lin, if he's very into coding and, and all that kind of stuff, it probably has the same experience, but, you know, certainly some of the oral medications, the pills, um, you know, and the, and the, once a week auto injector, you know, that does go through their, their pharmacy benefit, which, you know, does take a lot of, a lot of legwork, um, you know, from, from the staff to, to really get all the prior authorizations and send all the notes. So, uh, you know, some of the companies have partnered with specialty pharmacies that will help with some of that process, which is really nice. You know, it takes it off of my staff, my staff's plate, cause they have plenty of other things to work on. Um, because we want to, you know, make a good effort to get patients the treatment they would like to be on, but we also can't spend, you know, hours on the phone fighting with insurance just to get patient, you know, a specific, you know, oral pill for testosterone when there's lots of other options. Like we just, you know, we have enough staffing issues as it is. I'm sure everyone on the call has, has struggled with that in their practices. So, you know, we don't have extra time just to be arguing with insurance that we you know, want them to be on this specific testosterone pill or, you know, treatment. So. Yeah, yeah, good point. Um, Deb, a couple of questions or comments here. When do you draw repeat levels in the cycle with IM injections? Would that be any different than any other treatment options? Um, I don't know if it makes a huge difference. I mean, I normally try to do it kind of mid, you know, midweek. So if they're doing it like on a Saturday, Sunday, you know, try to do it kind of midweek just to see if they're, you know, kind of their their mid cycle levels are are therapeutic. I'm not sure if there's any specific guidelines or guidance on that. Maybe Dr. Lynn knows, uh, uh, but you know, I think it's, it's sometimes hard to time that, but uh, normally I try to at least initially when they're getting started on treatment, try to do it kind of mid cycle. And I do that with the pellets as well. You know, when they first start, start the pellets, typically we'll, uh, you know, do it sometime, you know, roughly six weeks into their, into their implant. Uh, so it's a time to kind of ramp up. And also it's, it's not, um, you know, hasn't started to drop down yet. So to see if the six pellets is actually enough, um, you know, and then if, they, if it's not enough with the pellets, you know, there are some, there are some uh, compounding pharmacies that kind of make, uh, you know, the generic pellets, you know, some patients will opt to, to do extra, uh, cause a lot of times insurance will not pay for more than that. But, uh, certainly, you know, during the height of COVID when we had, uh, you know, they had a lot of shortages with the, the pellet production, we did start using a lot of the compounded pellets and, and patients, you know, did like, uh, you know, getting some extra sometimes. So that's still an option for our patients. If they want to, you know, use more, uh, they certainly can do that if insurance doesn't cover it. Very good. And then also Deb said, I did not know you can give IM injections sub Q. I don't think it's the IM being given sub Q. It's the Zyostat is a sub Q injection, right? Zyostat is sub Q, correct. So and then, yeah, I mean, most of the most, you know, most often we do, you know, the weekly injections is IM, but actually in the AUA guidelines, it does mention, you know, potentially doing sub Q uh, weekly injections. I've never honestly done that myself. We always do it intramuscularly, but, um, you know, I don't know if Dr. Lin has any experience doing that, but it was, it was in the, in the, uh, you know, information about testosterone injections that you can do it sub Q. I've just never, never done that. 
Uh, other than the other than the Zyostead, which you know is is designed to be said to. Yeah, I, I read that same article because somebody had brought that up before. So yeah, you know experience that you've seen with it though. No, because the testosterone that's in the testosterone in the Zyostead is testosterone. I think it's an ananthate or ananthanate. Uh, it's a little different formulation, whereas the the typical ones we get for generic injection IM is is sipinate. Um, so I don't know if the sipinate works as well when it's up to you, but um, yeah, typically we would do the testosterone sipinate weekly IM. All right. Well, this has been a really great discussion. I think that we've learned a lot today. Um, I don't see any other questions coming in, which is good. That means we have kind of took the deep dive that we wanted to take into today's subject. Um, and we'd like to thank all of our uh, panelists for being here today. It's been really great. And then a little uh, bit of housekeeping here. We have next week's production coming up, which is going to be Slings. And that's going to be presented by Dr. Jay Kim, who's also another member of our group. And he was kind enough to to give us that presentation next week. So I look forward to seeing more about slings. And also uh, I do want to make a personal plea. So we have this thing called the after party that I've had for a while where we just people who can't get enough of us want to come back and they would come for a Zoom meeting. So I'm trying to test some new software. So I would like to, if a few of you can come on to this after party, you do have to go to the euronurse.com. Don't use the previous link because it's going to bring you to a new program that I'm testing out called StreamYard. And it's a, it's a program that doesn't, like Zoom, you have to have the software loaded on your, your system. This one doesn't require it. It just works through a web browser. But whether it's going to be something better or as good, I'm not sure. So, hey, if I can get a few of you to hit the, the after party button on the website, that'd be great. Otherwise, I would, again, like to take a chance to thank everybody who showed up, all of our great panelists every week who make this show uh, possible. And we have a lot of attendees out there. I'm not even going to read all the names, but you know who you are. Thanks for coming for the live show. And for those of you watching us on demand, keep watching. And uh, with that, I'm going to say goodbye to everyone and have a great day.